welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. I'm your host, Alex Gore, today. I'm here with Paul Tang. He is the founder principal of First Design. Prior to establishing his current practice, he was a former partner at multiple different firms. Um, he was also uh, formerly the Asian Pacific Specialist with a focus on China for SOM. He has taught at USC School for Architecture for over 19 years, and he was a former and founding academic director for USC's America Academy in China. Paul, welcome inside the firm. Thank you, Alex. Um, How's it going out there? Are you, you're probably still out in California. Yes, yes. It's actually kind of nice to be back in the, on the U.S. side uh, after spending about five years in Shanghai. Okay. So let's yeah. rewind the clock. Um, you got your bachelor's from USC and then you went and got your master's at Harvard. Right. What was the journey then from going back from Boston um, because then a couple years later, it seems that you taught at USC. Um, so what was the transition of getting out of uh, your master's degree? And, and what was that whole, st- uh, you know, finding your first job like? So I came out in 1991. Right? And the economy at that time in the U.S. was just, it's not happening. I remember having offers from, I had offers from Morphosis from uh, Frank Gehry, and I had an offer from Frank Israel. And by the time I drove from Boston to LA, took my time, about two weeks, and all those offers fizzled by the time I landed in LA. It, it just, it was terrible. I ended up, um, not that it was my second choice, I ended up at Bart Meyer's office for, for a brief amount of time. And uh, what happened was, unfortunately, he had to go through a massive layoff. And so I got so fed up um, and without a care right back then, I didn't really care about uh, many of the things that we now uh, need to care about. I just decided to pick up and I, I went to Singapore for a friend's wedding. While in Singapore, uh, I met up with uh, a colleague of mine who was working for Nikonseki International in Singapore. And so they made a nice offer for me to stay in Singapore uh, to see if I can, if I like it there. But my wife at the time really just did not like Singapore. But regardless, managed to do a uh, design exercise for a project for a Chinese bank in Beijing. That's kind of the start of my exposure into the whole China thing. So that yeah. was back in 1992 or 93. Could we explore that time a little bit more? And I have a question for you. Sure. Um, it, history rhymes. Uh, in, in 2008, mm-hmm. I had a similar experience. It wasn't as quick as yours. I went to work yeah. out for Daniel Liebskin. Um, right. You know, you graduate in May. And then the financial crisis hit 
in September and then lasted until around February. Um, so it was a short stint there with that 2008 recession. Are you, are you concerned with the Fed, with projects coming in? Because here's why. Some people, it's a possibility. I don't know how likely it is. Maybe you can answer that. That offers might go up or, or people might not get as many job offers or they might get rescinded depending on how things are going. Now, things in the Fed and the economy looked all right, but that doesn't, you know, you've been, you're older than me. It doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Things can happen on a, on a, on a dime. What is your current take on the economic situation? Well, I think the biggest challenge for anybody given the interest rate hike, it's really the availability of the, the resource in terms of money, right? Um, let's, uh, let's understand the bigger economy of development. Um, majority of the developers do not use their own cash to do developments, right? They need to borrow from the bank. And so the biggest hurdle right now, in my opinion, are those um, entities that require that kind of funding to proceed with any kind of development projects. So until such time that our interest rate becomes more friendlier, I think we're gonna have a hard time uh, seeing forward. Um, and this is, interesting enough, this is not something I learned through the 91 um, economic downturn, nor was it through 2008. I, I have been fairly lucky um, the 90, the early 90s, I ended up teaching. And in 2008, uh, because I was teaching, I was sent to China and I caught that timing perfectly while I was out in China. Um, and so I, I kind of dodged both of those uh, major um, economic uh, problems that we experience here. But coming back, looking at what's happening today here, um, it's interesting. My office right now are quite busy with a lot of um, pre-designed uh, work, fundamentally site analysis, uh, conceptual analysis, program development, and they're all for clients who actually owns the property. Mm. And the way they're looking at it is, is that they're looking ahead to say, okay, right now our entitlement process takes a lot longer. And what's the cost of an architect relative to the entire development costs? And they own the property, right? Uh, I'll just give you an example. Of the multiple clients that we're currently dealing with on the multiple properties we're doing the analysis, they're all owned by the clients. The, the newest property is purchased about seven years ago. So what's happening is that these developers have these um, property that they own and just sitting there. And now they're looking at the fact that maybe they want to do something with them. But they understand to start construction today will be difficult because you're not going to have the money, yeah. right? The, the, the availability of the bank loans, the, the construction loans. But what, if you look at the cost of an architect, which is really insignificant, and if you can begin to understand how developers begin to think about their projects, right? And, and, and for me, I internalize that as a design challenge. Right? And so with the idea of helping them re-evaluate re their program, re-evaluate the site, look at the potentials of the property, now's a good time, right? So assuming that you take about six months, maybe a little less than that, to do a full 
site analysis, program analysis, and a conceptual study on the potentials of a property. Um, once that's committed, uh, in many of these instances, you're going to have to go back with the, the jurisdiction and negotiate with them, right? Because um, these are projects of much larger substantial size, right? They're not a custom home. They're not a single family of it by any means. These are primarily mixed use or commercial projects. Okay? Yep. And, and so that's that entitlement process, at least here in the state of California, is going to take at least a year. Yep. Right. Thereafter, then you you have the the, the uh, building permits, right? So you can assume that's another year that's going to go by. By the time you're out of the ground and ready to go, it's three to four years down the line. Yep. And if you look at the economic the economy curve, right? So if you start planning it now, and I, I do admit slightly early, because whether or not we're really in a recession is debatable, but we do know that the interest rate has hiked. And so the, the question here is, is that there, there, it's a very small gamble when you consider the fact that ultimately that these developers will develop these, these empty lots that they own. Uh, and what they're paying is a fraction of the cost just to understand what the potentials are. And you put that investment now so that if you think it's viable, they will act, the product will actually then come out right as the economy begins to pick back up, right? Which in general, in the United States prior to, say prior to 2008, had always been about an eight to 10 year cycle. Right. So, so the idea is, is that you want to start catching it right as the economy begins to pick up. Yep. Right. So like the 2008, uh, I remember having a trip back here in 2013. Um, I left in 2010. When I came home in 2013, um, there was a lot of activity started to happen. Right. And at that moment, I just, there was a moment that I was thinking that maybe I should come back to LA then. Um, but uh, the attraction of being China at the time was very high. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. And I also think because of the development time with the city process or county, whoever has a, um, jurisdiction there, that the worst is almost behind because the worst timing, obviously we don't know the future, was if you started building when inflation prices were the high and you ended up selling in this kind of low dead period. Um, that that and that already kind of happened so those projects are already done and through so um i do think that they probably should be looking you know that long term and and be able to hit it um one question though in case that doesn't happen for uh, architecture students graduating uh one strategy that that you you kind of took um and some people take but i don't know if people take enough advantage of it do you think that it might be a good strategy to go abroad either to Asia or the Middle East, or are those economies or central banks too tied with the U.S. that everyone is flowing on on a similar economic ship these days? I I actually think that that just to go somewhere different um, is always going to be a benefit, right? I, I and I I have to tell you, um, prior to me establishing verse design which means prior to me leaving the united states in 2010 although prior to that i always engaged in projects overseas quite predominantly in asia and china my operation was still a, you know predominantly a custom home renovation right a very small practice 
Um, and we taught ourselves as being design-based, right? And we're all design-based practices. The difference was what, when I went out to, to China, right? And I was actually sent out there to establish the American Academy in China. But what I found was the, the entire notion of practice is completely different. Uh, and it becomes even more obvious to me once I return and reestablish the office here is if you start look comparing like just what we do on a daily basis, I would tell you that almost 70% of my time while I was overseas, I was um, with a pencil uh, and drawing, right? And, and, and whatever that design process is for individuals, because I know uh, a lot of the younger generation, they've lo they, they no longer on a pencil on a, on a paper, right? They're, they can start right out digitally on a, on, a, on a software, which is fine. Uh, just the, for uh, context, what time frame was it? And was it just you or was it the older guys and the younger guys too also on, on pencils? So, so the, I'm old school that way, right? When I graduated in 91, computer was just at its infancy. I was fascinated with it. Um, we're constantly trying to explore, like what, what can the computer, the digital uh, instruments help us change our profession, right? And I think that verdict's still out there. Um, you know, it's it's just, a, for me, the way to, to engage a project is still very much manual, right? Analog is by a sketch model or by a drawing in my sketchbook, or maybe just layers and layers of trace papers, right? And, yeah. and you, you build the idea up. And I had noticed just by more recent teaching that students don't necessarily do that anymore. Right. They, they take a completely different process, just from the perspective that in the old days, we used to be very plan dominant. Right. So we're looking at a plan and we're coming up with the ideas and, and seeing it in our head about the three dimensional possibility that exists. But the way that's documented or recorded for us to understand what that might be is predominantly in the plan. And when we can't get past that is when we do a quick study model. Right. Mm -hmm. I think. I think that the younger generation, when they design, they actually immediately go through a three-dimensional um, uh, start, which is extremely fascinating to me. I'm not necessarily it's wrong, um, but the area of focus, um, in other words, where they pay attention to when they look at the design is dramatically different than from the days when I was doing it, right? Because you do begin to look at certain uh, alignments when you're looking in plan. Uh, and those alignments in realities when you're in the space may not matter. And so there's a little bit of both, right? And then you see plans generated that was designed from a three-dimensional uh, model. And you, you're, you're looking at it and you say, oh my God, if you just align that by just maybe four inches, that would align. But they, they don't, you know, because that's not what they're looking at. They're not looking at a two-dimensional plan. They're looking three-dimensionally right as an object when that's a space right so it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a fascinating thing for me to just observe right um and, and so i i can't remember why we, we even got on that subject yeah as, uh, you were saying basically the question was should people look at going abroad and i think you expanded that and i asked just because of recessionary monetary reasons and you were right. saying cultural or perspective and, and that's yes. where you're flowing from 
Right. You get to, not only do you get to experience a complete different culture, not just the, the culture of being in a different location, but the culture as a designer changes. Because I think, I think the design process is necessarily a reactive uh, approach. Right? It's a reactive thing. You react to certain things. Yes. Right? Yes. And so, so in that sense, when you're immersed in a completely, a complete different culture, you have to begin to reevaluate your own practice, your own conventions, right? And so as a designer, you begin to ask those questions, like, how do you design? No different than, than you know, the fact that I'm, I'm still old school with a pencil and a paper, whereas the younger generation is three-dimensional, right? And I, I see the advantage and disadvantage of both approach, but it definitely reminds me as a designer what I need to look out for. So what happens is that when you do go abroad, not only do you then begin to be exposed to a completely different culture, but you actually begin to, to experience and observe how that particular culture reacts to certain things that might be completely different than your own value systems. Do you have an example? Um, I'll give you a great example. For the longest time, right, even though I'm the Asia Pacific specialist for SLM, right, and SLM did not do a lot of residential projects back then, especially in China, because they can't engage, is that you look at the way in which the master plans are developed. When it comes to a residential component, everybody faces south. And that's oh, it's just in China. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. At one time, I was in a city in the evening, in a very small town, township, right? And I, in the evening, I just decided I want to go walk around, right, and soak in the, the, the area. I had a project or a perspective project. I got lost. But I knew I was traveling south from the hotel I was staying at. Um, and I actually managed to find my way back to the hotel by looking at buildings. Because then I can tell which way I am, the direction, the orientation, right? Because I knew all the residential units for the most part, it's going to face south or southeast, right? And so what happens is that when you begin to look at the site planning or the master plan for any development, everything are like all faces south. That doesn't happen here. No. You've seen, uh, yeah. Right? So what it does is that as an academic, you start to criticize it, right? We start to criticize these things. And then, then once I'm there for a few years, I realize, wait a second, we may be able to introduce newer ideas of what we value more, right? Which is not necessarily south facing, right? It comes with the benefit of, of solar exposure, so on and so forth. Yep. But we value other elements within the entire built environment to say, hey, you know, when everybody's all like facing one direction, it doesn't make very good urbanism. Hmm. But then you begin to understand, wait a second here. They just won't live in a unit that faces any other direction. And it's for 5,000 years. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so you have to then reevaluate those values that we hold dear and say, so wait a second. In the end, it's not about you or me as a designer. It's about that end user and what their value systems are. And how do you then, then design it in such a way? That begin to reflect those values or or improve those values for them. 
Yeah. And it's just very unfortunate, right? It's only until this last trip, my partner from China was just here because of COVID. They had been locked down for three years. And she, one of the things that he showed me was, he, he said, Paul, I got to show you something you're not going to believe. We are now able to, to propose residential development projects where not all the units are facing south and it's doing well. And this is what, uh, that debate started in 2010 when we got together. I left in 2015. Now it's 2022, seven years later. So altogether, almost 12 years later with my partner, is he finally able to come around and tell me, hey, it's beginning to work. Yep. Right. And back then when I proposed anything other than that, he would look at me and say, you're nuts. Right. Completely insane. So what happens is, is that when you do go abroad, you go to an area, it, maybe sometimes it's not even abroad, just to a completely different city. Right. Is that you begin to expose yourself and understand yourself as a designer. And, and I think the thing really comes down to is what we value. What are our value systems as a designer? And you begin to question that. And it also becomes a wonderful window to look back in. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't all that uh, aware of the practices here um, because we're immersed in it. But when I'm in China, looking back at it, I say, oh, my God, there's just certain things that we can do much better if we can just slightly understand it a little different. Yeah. Right. Uh, very interesting. Uh, going backwards in time, when you were teaching at college, you teach for about 12 years at USC. Were you also in practices at the same time? Um, I was a professor of practice. So I always had an office. Um, my wife used to call it uh, that my profession is actually an academic. Yeah. That practice is a hobby. <laughs> right. And I struggle just like everybody else, right? I struggle really hard. It's, it's so difficult when things that are important to us always get value engineered out mm. almost repeatedly. And then it was during the time, right? And I really spent the five years in China reflecting on, on the success and the failures is when all of a sudden it occurs to me is, is you and I can have a very interesting uh, discourse, um, maybe the, the theoretical underpinnings of our practice, right? Or we can talk about a project in those theoretical terms, but to a client, it's gonna go right over their head. In other words, the majority of the projects out there, right, are not the museums, not the, the, the libraries, right? Cultural centers, whatever, the, yep. Right, right. So, but the majority of the projects out there, in my opinion, are truly the reflection of the actual culture, which is how people live and work. And they're done by developers. Yep. Right, and, and I think developers' true interest, yes, they're interested in a good project, but the key is what defines good, right? And so it occurred to me is that, wait a second here, I can't, and it's the same thing, right? I can't consistently use my own value systems to judge everything across the board. And once I opened that up, it allowed me to then begin to converse in a way that are much more important in terms of value to a developer and therefore allowed them to say, hey, wait a second here, you actually know 
what I do more than I do, because we have the advantage to actually understand the physicality of both the, the artifact as a building and the space that it creates and how people use it. Do you they have an example of, do you have example of uh, something like that happening? Oh yeah. The project that brought me back to the US, right? Was a client um, that I had served for multiple years, very small projects. Right? She's a developer that was based out of Silicon Valley. Uh, she also had holdings in China, in Beijing. So the way we met was she came to me back in, oh my God, it might've been as early as 2000 or 2001. She secured a property at that time around the, out just on the, a, a, uh, within the third wing row of Beijing and asked me to design a tower for her. In the end, it was a small competition. We lost the project, right? But she remembered. Um, and so uh, she flew out to Shanghai to visit me to see my practice. Uh, we stayed in touch. I'd done some very small uh, single family residential renovations in one house for her in uh, the Bay Area uh, before I left for Shanghai. She came to me and she says, listen, um, I'm ready to take my development company in, in the U.S. and take that next uh, leap of faith and wanted to do a much larger development, right? And she was looking at what I've done in China and says, uh, I think you might be the right uh, architect I'm looking for. And I think the way she was thinking about it is really in terms of as a designer. So what she did was she, she created this invitational only competition and it was myself, HOK, RTKL, and I believe Gensler was in it, right? So it was all these kind of- Big, big guys, yeah. Yeah, the competition fee was like $40,000. But the requirement was like, you need to do a fly through, you know, the requirement was so high. I remember thinking to myself, I established a 10 year plan to be in China um, and I was only halfway there. And so, but because of my kids, um, I thought, you know, the education I believe is still better here. and so I kind of went into a half-hearted reason being is I just didn't think the 40,000 was a sufficient amount of fun for me to, to take, uh, to, to, to take the beat, uh, you know, these large corporates who may invest all the money they got, right. Or yeah. they have deep pockets. They can really go after this project. And then two things happened. One, I realized there was no fixed zoning. Without a fixed zoning, which means that all these design proposals, it's a beauty contest. By the time it really gets down to the the project, you're going to have to renegotiate the size, the height, everything with the city. Second thing was I could not afford to, to take additional cash out of my pocket to invest into this development. All those big, the project is just finished and it's, um, 260,000 square feet of uh, research and development office space in Silicon Valley. Is it on your website? Is this one? It's the, uh, I think we call it STS. It's the, it's, it's the one, it's called the, oh, 3075, uh, 3075 something. It is on my website, but it's not very much updated. 
just looking if I can find it. Um, so one of the big louvers. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Yeah, but the the, the, the interesting thing is is not the design. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Actually, you know what? There you go. That's it. 30, the 3075 tech. Yeah, yep. that's the project. Okay. So the interesting thing was when I decided that there's no way I can win the beauty contest. Um, my flight was delayed from Shanghai to San Francisco. So whereas I was like the second or third presenter, I ended up to be dead last, which was to my benefit. But at the end, um, when I went to San Francisco, I actually didn't have a scheme. I didn't do any design work. I decided, I said, listen, she is a developer, right? And if it's just a beauty contest and she's going to pay us $40,000 to give her some information that need, might be of some use, the decision was I actually ran a Performa. I ran seven different versions of the, the potential for this particular property. But I used the wrong lease rate because I wasn't able to get that number when, while abroad in Shanghai. So I plugged in the number at that time from a data from Los Angeles, not in the Bay Area. And so she was extremely disappointed. She was not just disappointed, she was pissed. She says, I paid you $40,000 for you to show me a design. And all you gave me is these seven different spreadsheets. And I looked at her and I said, listen, I don't mean to disrespect, but I just got to tell you, any design that I commit to paper right now is just, it's a willfulness of the, me as a designer, of the architect. It has nothing to do with reality. Because the reason being, there's no fixed zoning on this site right now. It needs to be negotiated. Which means that anything I put down on paper, any of that money that I spent would have been wasted. Right? And she got even more angry at me. She said, you mean to tell me, you know, it's not just you. She put in something like $140,000, $150,000, or maybe more than that, $160,000 to do this exercise. And I'm basically accusing her that it's a waste of her time. Yeah, time and right. money. Right, time and money. And I said, listen, I don't want my 40000 You pay me for my round-trip tickets, right? I'm going to call it even. Because I got to tell I said, listen, you and I have known each other for a long time. I'm a little surprised at how upset you are at me. But listen, you call me. I didn't call you. And I know you call me because you, you respect and you, you like my, my design. I, I thank you for that. But at the end of the day, it's not just my project. It's your project as well. And if you follow through my seven different performers, my conclusion to you is, is don't do this project. The timing's not right. And she looked at me and I said, listen, why would I be here flying all this way from Shanghai to San Francisco just to tell you not to do the project? I'm going to leave this place today without a project in my hand because I am. I have the confidence, since you called me, I didn't call you, that when the right project comes along, you'll call me again. And she says, oh, you're right. You flew in here just to tell me not to do it. I said, yes. 
And so her next question, and she started drilling down on my, my the data, right? the data that I used to generate the performa. And when it got to the rent per square foot per, per month, she says, what did you use there? I say, I used $3 a, a square, uh, $2.50 a square foot per month. Yeah. He says, he looked at me, he says, Paul, do you know right now in the Bay Area, it's already up at three. That's a 50 cents per square foot jump. And that's a 20% jump in revenue. So at 250,000 square feet, right? That's a huge difference. And she says, is it easy for you to plug in that new rent rate to recalculate the cap? I said, yes. It's a simple cap, right? It's yeah, not, yeah. right? It's very simple. It just took hard costs, soft costs. I didn't even bother to, to look at interest rates because I don't know how, okay? Yeah. And by plugging that number from the 250 to three, all my cap rates jump to a level where the bank is saying, hey, that's great. Now you can do this project. It's financeable. And so she says, see, even your research is wrong. I said, but you're missing the point. I'm just an architect, right? I'm sure your own development team to run those caps for you with more finite numbers than me. But the difference is, I flew out here. I'm going to decline your fee. All you got to do is pay me for my round trip ticket, right? Is that to tell you as a friend now, I think this is a bad project. I don't think the timing is right. You need to reevaluate, right? Because it was an open-ended competition. No, There's nothing. It, she just said, here's a property. We're in Silicon Valley. I'll go to it, right? And she has stuck in her head is just an office building. Right. Although at the end, it was an office building. But in the beginning, I even challenged. I said, listen, why can't this be a mixed use? Without really me having the ability to have a full analysis of the site and the surroundings, there may be other programs that can generate a better return. I don't How, know any of that. Yeah. How did she come back to choosing you then? On the spot. So she said, can you excuse us? Right, and asked me to go out to the waiting room again. So I went out in the waiting room. Yeah. And this and then about well, I waited for maybe twenty minutes. It wasn't that long. Right. I had a cup of coffee. I remember the and coffee. She has a group of yet. people that she's talking to? Yes. In the room. She came back out here. Oh, and the, then her assistant came out, invited me back in the room, sat me down and looked at me and says, You know, let me ask you this. That's when she said, You mean to tell me by your recommendation, if I accept them, you're going to walk out of this door tonight without a project. I say, absolutely. She says, so you came here to tell me not to do it. I say, yes. And she says, now with the numbers being adjusted, what do you think? I says, it's doable. I screwed up, right? And since I screwed up, I don't expect you to award me the project, right? I took a gamble. It was a big mess up. I used the wrong data. It's not my strength. Right. Yeah. And she looked at me and says, just for that, it's rare to see how an architect can actually be more interested in my development rather than your design. And then I, the next that's question, such a, a the smart conclusion. Yeah. And then she says, How long would it take you to reestablish? I said, My God, at least six months. She said, I'll give you six months. I expect you to be up and running in six months. Project yours. That's the project that brought me home in 2015. That is a crazy story. <laughs>
That is such. Congratulations, <laughs> her. Congratulations, you. Because it wasn't just you. Like she had to be smart enough to to, right. to realize all that. Right. Right. And, and the thing was, she was the decision maker. There's no middle management there. Right. Because unfortunately, and this is something I learned when I was in China, right, or working in Asia. Unless you can get yourself to talk to the actual decision maker, you know, the CIA, the, the, you know, the cover your ass, CYA comes into play. Middle management is going to take you to a lot more things than consideration to include risk management. Yep. Right? And I could go on and on about risk management in the U.S. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, again, it comes down to recognizing what the value is. Right. And I know I can design based on that. You know, if I can recognize those value as a parameter or as a context to which I need to design to as a design challenge, right? Not a limit. Then I think you actually are beginning to provide a valuable service for the people that's going to pay for your work. The rest then becomes easy because I have to suspect that if we're, you're well educated, we can all, we're all good designers to some extent, right? Yeah, there's a lot of good designers. Architecture school does great at teaching design. That's right. Honestly. It, the part that I would say, it's not that they're not great at teaching uh, pro practice or business development. Is that I think what happens is it's it comes down to critical thinking. So I don't make a distinction between, you know, I hate it when someone says, oh, that's what you learned in school. Now let me teach you the real world, right? I, I don't buy into that because to me, it's the same sort of cerebral approach that you need to take to any kind of challenges. So it's just recognizing that design is a, is a reflection about value, right? And how do you then design in such a way that you begin to maximize that value across the board? And I'm not sitting here, I'm not saying that I'm like designing with a calculator, right? But I am designing with that number in the back of my head. I, I got to tell you, I don't know how to calculate interest rates. Mm -hmm. Right? There are people that use that special calculator where they're on the line. They can figure all that out. I, the I IRR and right? all that stuff. Yep. Right. No. I, I do such a simple little thing. And this is my trade secret. Before any project that comes to my office, I tell my client two things. Good, ever, good site planning or urbanism makes good business sense. Is you're fighting for the the attention of the larger public. If it's not cited properly, you're not going to have the right exposure. You're not going to have the right access, right? It's all about how you situate yourself and respect the context in which you are set. You're you're in for the project's in, right? It's that little pebble in the pot. It's going to cause a little ripple when it first lands. But the idea is, is once it land, right, it should be glossy smooth, right? You become part of that natural fabric. And so, so, so that's what makes any project at the end for financial success, right? Never mind what we value before a developer is that it needs to be recognized as a place. So if they can recognize as a place, that means that it fits. If it fits, isn't that good urbanism or good site planning? And so it makes good business sense. So that's where I start first. Next one, I, I tell them what I do is, is that I challenge their programs. 
right? A lot of times they'll come to me and say, oh, I want to do uh, 100 units of apartments. They, every developer wants to max out the FAR. But then you look at them and say, do you have the money to do all that? Do you have enough resources in case you hit a, a, a low spot in the economy? And now you're going to have all that in your hand. It basically becomes toxic, uh, toxic asset if you can't get rid if he cannot offload it, right? Timing is everything. And so you say, hey, listen, I'm not telling you not to do what you want to do, but I'm advising you is that, hey, can you phase it, right? Is there a different way to look at this project so that it's completely different? So I, I actually take to heart um, Rem's uh, uh, Delirious New York, right? So it's not just about, you know, it's a retail, it's a restaurant, whatever it is. It's actually all about that narrative programming or program narrative. I'm sorry, I said it backwards, right? It's the possibility of putting different uses together to create these alternatives, right? The naked men eating oysters in a, in a men's locker room with uh, boxing gloves on, that classic little sketch, yeah. right? It's that kind of scenarios that people will remember that will identify the projects and so you start looking at that in terms of the situation in which every project is situated in. So we go back and challenge our clients, right? Are you sure you just want to do, say, 100 units? Why not put a podium? Because you can bring on much higher value, right, um, on the podium, particularly if you're in an urban situation. Right? How do you bring that activity up into the units? Right? Every developer is going to want to say, I want my units to be efficient, which means they don't want the public areas to be too, too large. Because right? all the money gets invested in the building in that public area and they can't rent it or they can't sell it. Yep. But then, wait a second. Are you selling the condos or are you renting the apartment or are you actually selling the lifestyle or renting a lifestyle? So if the lifestyle in the urban situation for the younger generation, they're not going to sit in their room all day. Right? So, so you create these kind of public spaces, right? So on one of our projects, I convinced the client, although this is still debatable, not to have any laundry machines in their unit. And then on the other side of it, you create a laundry, uh, laundry room, but you celebrate the hell out of it. In other words, not a laundry room. It's a lounge. Yep. Right? You have to be there to watch your clothes dry but if that same time you can meet your neighbor and you celebrate that space, kind of like a lounge or maybe even a bar or a coffee shop, then you actually make it so that they're celebrating that activity of being together where they're forced to be there. The other thing is swimming pools. Highly expensive. Why are you putting it in? Right? I understand if you could put in for exercise purposes a lot for but majority of the time you see these beautiful, large swimming pools, and they're definitely an attraction when it comes to the realtors and the brokers who's gonna lease it or sell it. But the idea really is at the end of the day, the way it's being used is everybody sits all around it. Very few of them are ever in the water. So take that same amount of money, create smaller pockets with jacuzzis. They're a lot cheaper. They're lost, less expensive. You can create a lot pool for exercise purposes, but you, you shrink that down a little bit and you, put, you create multiple, a little more, the spaces that has more privacy, 
so yep. that these public spaces when neighbors could get together over a glass of wine and a jacuzzi. And so that becomes more valuable. So it's this kind of, you know, rethinking the programs, rethinking about the conventions, right? So from the get-go, I typically tell my clients, that you're not going to like it when I'm going to tell you right now, but I'm going to encourage you to go at least like 35% um, in terms of efficiency. That means that 35% of public spaces versus uh, over uh, 65% of actual leasable or sellable, right? Majority developer has this 2080 stuck in their head. They come to you and say, I want to make it efficient, 80%. But you don't create a community. You got these long, deadly corridors, right? Yep. And so by selling this other component, by making them realize you're not selling the, the units. And besides, I say, listen, who today live in a physical space? They live in here, right? They just happen to sleep or work in the physical space that we design. Yep. You're so, holding up your iPad for the podcast listeners who can't see. Oh, I'm I just, see. yeah, yep. Yeah, it's, it's the iPhone, right? Everybody has their smartphone. Yep, yep. So, so to me, your question earlier about, you know, this whole digital divide, right? How has it impacted our practice? I think that we need to start addressing, you know, right now you and I are actually on this podcast and they may not see, but at least you and I are in the same virtual space. It is a space there, right? It's a space in which we are interacting. And I'm just, I don't have an answer, but I'm constantly curious is how that then changes our way of understanding the physical space that we're in, right? Because in reality, between you and you, you and me, there is a space, but it's really not a physical space. Yep. Right. And how do you? It's design about a foot and a half. You're a yes. foot and a half away. And, and you're you're a foot and a half, right? So in total, maybe no more than three feet, right? Yeah. But but conceptually, it could be as far as you're in Colorado. I'm in Los Angeles, yeah. right? It could be that distance as well. So to me, it's 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 really using that as a challenge to reexamine our craft. Like, how do you understand that? How do you then create a space that begins to respond to that? And I, like I said, I don't have my answers yet. To me, the, the part is, is really realizing that and ask the right question. So for me, I don't, like in every one of our projects, we would try to bring on uh, uh, these kind of consultants that are dealing with low voltage, uh, dealing with uh, smart systems, because I, I, I would like to have them to have as much as we do a physical master plan, I like them to do a virtual master plan. What are you offering to enhance that lifestyle, right? Within the, the development that you're working on. Yeah. Because unfortunately today, majority of that is afterthought, right? The low voltage in the, you know, and it's just in security, right? In, in our fire alarm systems, that's where it starts. And then we're struggling to try to get those conduits in. But if you had a master plan and you can actually wrap that entire thing into one system, why not? And so it's this kind of way of re-examining our role as, the, as, a, as an architect. And so, you know, with that same thought, uh, and maybe some other time, my thoughts about the current way in which students are educated is problematic. Right. For the longest time, the, the digital divide has been in form finding. Yep. 
which is great. There, you know, there's some fantastic forms that I see, but I think if we just anchor ourselves in that alone, what is it saying? Architects can just influence the form. I think the more importantly is that we actually dictate lifestyle. We dictate how the people will use our spaces by dictating how they live and work. And so, so yes, there's this other component that we need to respect and, 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 and we thrive on that, which is much more the, the issues and all the discussions and discourse on aesthetics, right? But on the other hand of it, you know, the, this idea of the function, and I'm not talking just about the mundane functions of, of a certain performance, but the function in terms of, you know, how do we define lifestyle? How do we define how people live and work? How do you then design it in such a way that you begin to incorporate all these different ideas and approach a design? And if you can convince your client in those terms and dumb it down to the point they can understand, I don't want to say dumb it down. They are developers. Simplify. Quite simplify. Sure. Yeah, you simplify it, right? Make it um, clear. Clarity. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then next thing you know, majority of my clients today, actually, the, it, it, I would say 70% of my clients are repetitive clients. They will actually go and get a piece of property or they have a property. They will say, hey, I'm about to, to, to engage on this. I'm about to buy this. What do you think? Can you do a quick study on that? Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's not much. It's $20,000, $30,000 max, maybe sixty-five at the most. Right. Um, it's a quick study. And of course, it depends on the size of the property. Right. Sure. And so to me, not only is that so valuable for your developer clients or anybody for that matter? Um, for us, it, it opens the door. It's far better than showing them your portfolio, right? The portfolio to me is just for them to recognize that you have the skill sets, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't have the, the, the portfolio, that you're no good. Everybody's got to start somewhere. Yep. Right. And so it really comes down to these real short little studies you do for your clients to help them realize their value. But as they realize their value, you're, they are also realizing your value as a designer. And that is for them far more than just what you can show in your, on your portfolio, like our website. Yep. That website, we just finally posted and I'm not happy with it. We just finally uploaded that website late last year, early this year. So from 2015 to now, we didn't have a website. We didn't, we didn't, I didn't hit the pavement. There was no marketing. <laughs> it was just by word of mouth from one to another. We're small. I'm, I have a very small office, right? Currently there's only seven of us. Right? Yep. But, but we compete at a whole different level. I mean, we're competing with still, we continue to compete with the corporates, the much larger firms. Yeah. So if you're the middle manager for a developer, you're not going to go with us. We're not safe to go with a Gensler, HOK, RTKO, who has got track records and got, you know, the company's always going to be there. It's a safer recommendation. Is it a good recommendation? I'm not saying that they're bad. Of course. But what I am, I am saying that um, it's, a, it's a different thing, right? I mean, what we can offer is dramatically different 
than these other firms. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's, and I'm not knocking any of these firms. They're, they're certain, they always come down to the team that you have, right? And so what I'm saying is, is that, that, you know, there's certain areas where I'm not as hampered being smaller and I could be selective, right? Because I don't need to feed as many employees, Yeah, right? We can take one project, one good substantial project. If I can convince the client to hire us, it'll last me years, right? In a corporate, that may be just six months. Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Right. So I, th- I think we could go on for a while and I think we should, uh, but I think we should do it at a different time. We yes. should uh, definitely connect back up, maybe see what's happening in a year because there's topics that I didn't get to uh, explore and, I, and I'm sure we could go even deeper. Um, but right. I want to thank you for what you shared. I think it was really valuable, um, really insightful. If there's anything you want to leave the audience with or where to check you out, I'll let you have the last last word paul um just gotta know who you are as an architect and really dive in with this this big question like what is what are my values as a designer what are your values as a designer and what is it you want to be when you grow up right when you become a mature designer and maybe you never get there but truly truly not only look at who you are but look at who your audience is and your clients are understanding their value is a huge part of the game that will help you win. Yep, absolutely. Thanks a lot. It was good talking to you. Thanks. Thank you.